If you've got a Bible, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're coming into land on our series that we've been doing on 2 Timothy. And this week it's chapter 4. Across the pond, the race for the White House is, is, is hotting up. Uh, and we're all uh, slightly holding our breaths as our American brethren begin to think seriously about uh, and who, who is going to lead not only their nation, but also who is going to, who's going to be a pretty key influencer in international politics after the, after the general election, uh, the presidential election there. Here in the, here in the UK, uh, this coming Thursday... Uh, it will find us all once again heading off to the polls as we vote in uh, local council elections. Uh, and the pundits are saying that this is an incredibly important election. It's going to indicate uh, who might form the next government after the next general election, depending on how things uh, turn out. Uh, here in London, uh, we have uh, an extra exciting bit and part to play as we get to vote for a, a, a new London mayor. So there's all these kind of elections going on. There's all these uh, decisions that people are making as to who they want to represent them. Who do they want to be their leaders? Who do they want to, uh, to lead them and to represent them? And, you know, it's interesting. When it comes to deciding uh, who people should vote for, people's processes, their decision-making processes is actually really quite interesting. Um, some people cast their ballot because, you know, they take a look at the candidate and go, well, you know, he's a pretty good-looking chap, or, you know, she's, she's pretty good-looking. I'm, I'm sure they look pretty honest. They look nice. They, uh, I, I think that would, they'd make a good candidate. I mean, I'm sure I, uh, they've got my vote. Um, other people would just say, uh, you know, um, well, I've kind of listened to some of what they have to say, and uh, it seems that they like people like me, um, and it seems that they want to represent people like me, and I like me, and I think I'm really important, and so I want to vote for them because they're going to look after me. And that's the kind of basis for our decision. Uh, some people hopefully will have somewhere along the lines read it through a manifesto or two and will say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for this chap or this woman over here because I think they, um, I agree with their stance on two or three major or key issues. Uh, other people say, well, I don't know, I've never really thought about it. I mean, I, my, my mum and dad always voted for X or for Y and seems like, you know, that's that's the best thing to do, or, um, well, I, I, I haven't really thought about it because I always vote for X, or I always vote for Y. Why, would I, why, on earth, why on earth would I change my mind? Now, just as an aside, it, it's certainly not our place to say who and how uh, you should be voting um, this uh, coming Thursday, but I think it is our job, just as an aside, to encourage all those of us who are eligible to vote to be engaging with these local elections. We uh, all ought to be engaging um, and taking seriously our civic duty uh, as Christians living in a democracy, having this incredible opportunity to cast our vote and to influence and to have a say on the people that we want to represent us and who we want to lead us. And we should, as Christians, be doing everything that we possibly can to find out everything that we possibly can and then 
um, before the Lord making our decision and voting accordingly. Because effectively what we have is the opportunity to influence, to have a say in who our leaders will be. Who, in this case, political. Who will lead us? Now, the Bible, as you know, the Bible has a lot to say about leadership. The, the Bible has a lot to say about governance. The Bible has a lot to say about both leadership in the church and about leadership in the world. And um, although we may be only able to cast one vote, you know, for those who should lead us and govern us either locally or nationally, when it comes to the church, when it comes to the church, we're, we're actually constantly in a position of, of, of who we choose to follow. We constantly have that uh, decision in front of us. So, for example, I don't know, you, uh, maybe you find yourself living in a new city. Maybe you've been relocated for work or you've finished at university and you've, you've, you've left one city and you suddenly find yourself in a new city and you're... You, the first thing you do, of course, when you arrive in a new city is you say, I need to find myself a local church. I need to get stuck into a church. How do you, how do you in that scenario, how do you go about making that decision? You know, do you just say, well, you know, I live here at number 73, and there's a church like three doors down, right? So that's the nearest church, so I'm just going to go there, right? Because it's the nearest church to where I live. Is that, your, is that the, the decision-making process that you take? Um, or do you kind of go around a little bit and do a little bit of research, and it's a bit like um, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, you know, um, that one's too big, don't like that, you know, that one's too small, don't really like that one, but this one is just right, you know. Um, is, that the, is that the process that we take? Do you say to yourself, well, I don't know very much about them, but I went to this church the other day, and they serve Krispy Kreme donuts, you know, and I went to this other church, and on the side that looked like it had been left there since last week was a rather stale pile of crumbly rich tea biscuits. And so you make your decision as to which church you're going to go to based on the quality of the, um, of the halftime show. Do we ask ourselves questions like, do you know what, I, 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 don't, really know why. I don't really know why. It doesn't really make very much sense. I don't really know what I'm going to get out of it, but I, I just have this sense. I know, some, I know deep in my knower that God has something for me to contribute to that church. Maybe I should go there. Or maybe do we say to ourselves, well, do you know what, it might be a schlep. It's actually pretty inconvenient. But for some reason, I think the people there, they're sort of like, they feel like my family. I, I, I've never actually met them before, but they, they felt like family. They feel like, they feel like family and friends. And, and, and we often hear people say, and I went to this church and it felt like I'd come home. You often hear people saying that. What about making a decision based on, well, I, I, think, I think they believe what I believe. I think um, the way that they interpret the scriptures over here is, is the way that I understand and interpret the scriptures. I, I think, broadly speaking, we, we're all reading off the same page. We're all singing off the same uh, song sheet. You know, we, we, we all hold dear to the same values. The things that I value, they seem to value. One of the things that we should... Uh, consider when trying to work out which part of the body of Christ the Lord would have us serve in is what are the leaders like? 
It's a, it's a really good and really important question. And when I say leaders, um, I don't just mean, you know, the people who do the sort of stuff that we do, right? I don't just mean um, Kate or myself or Mike or James or Manny or Sinead, although obviously I do mean all of us. Uh, but I mean, what are all the leaders like? What are the other leaders in the church like? What are the house group leaders like? What are the, what are the people who you, know, um, who you entrust your children you know, into their care every week when they, you pack them off to Vineyard Kids? What are the people who lead Vineyard Kids like? What are the people who lead youth like? What are the people who run the ministries of the church like? You know, things like food bank or job club. What kind of leaders are they? And the reason that it's important to ask what the leaders are like is because it's the leaders of a church that are pretty much, to a large extent, going to determine what kind of a church it's going to be, what the church is going to look like and feel like. And the text that we're going to look at this morning, um, in this text, Paul outlines some of these things, some of the things that we should be looking for, for you know, in, in those who are in Christian leadership. So, 2 Timothy chapter 4, just to recap, okay, um, Paul is in prison, uh, he's, about to get, he's about to be killed, um, he, 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 he's got a pretty good idea that that's what's going to happen to him, he's writing to the young Timothy, and, and, and Timothy has been left in charge of the church in Ephesus, and Paul is basically giving the young Timothy in this transitional phase of the, the leadership of the early church, He's giving the young leader, Timothy, this young chap, he's giving him his final counsel. He's giving him what are, in effect, his, his kind of last words. And, um, and with leadership in the early church being in this transitional phase, it's, it's passing on from one generation to the next, literally. Paul is taking this last opportunity um, that he has to, to, to lay out some of the principles. He, he, he sets out some timeless principles um, for the things that we should be thinking about in terms of our leaders, whether they are um, leading the local church, whether they're leading the house group or the small group that we're thinking about going to, whether they're running or leading the area of ministry um, that we're signed up to. So, if you have a Bible, 2 Timothy chapter um, 4, let's start in verse 1. In the presence of in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I've, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. 
I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Isn't it awesome? So here we've got Paul, he's outlining pretty much something in the first five verses or so. Um, it's essentially the job description of a Christian, the job description of a Christian leader. And the first thing about Christian leaders is that they understand their mandate. They understand what it is that they've been called to. Verse 1, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. I give you this charge. Way back in some uh, dim and distant uh, previous life and some memory, um, when I was ordained, these were the verses, these were the verses that were read. These were the verses that were read. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Uh, and the reason that these verses are used so frequently when ministers are ordained is because they contain so much of the fundamental mindset that, that anyone in any kind of Christian leadership really always ought to have. And that it's something to do with an almost constant um, recognition, a constant apprehension of, of our accountability, of our accountability in light of the fact that of the second coming of the Lord, in light of the fact that the Lord is going to appear again and his kingdom is coming. And, and in other words, for, for those of us who are in any kind of Christian leadership, there's the, the backdrop constantly in our heads, constantly in our hearts, is this sense that as shepherds of God's flock, as servants, as leaders, we will have to give an account before God of our lives and our actions. Something, um, it's something we're constantly reminded of. You read the New Testament, it sort of pops up all over the place in the New Testament, like a constant little reminder. You haven't forgotten, have you, that you will be held to account for your actions. You, the Apostle James says it fantastically in, um, in James chapter 3, verse 1. He says this, he says, Not many of you should presume to become teachers, you know, my, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Great. Uh, in the message translation is even better. The message translation says this. It says, don't be in a rush to become teachers, my friends. Teaching is highly responsible work. Teachers are held to the strictest standards. And none of us is perfectly qualified. We get it wrong nearly every time we open our mouths. How true is that? Living proof. But the reality, the reality that God will hold our lives to account it is something that the Apostle Paul, he constantly lived with. It was in the, the foreground of his mind, not just in the background. In, in Romans 14, he writes this, For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. And it's the reality of this accountability that, that gives Paul the urg his urgency in his preaching, in the way that he lives life, and the way that he does everything. He knows that he's going to be held to account. He knows that the world is going to be held 
to account in 2 Corinthians 5. He says this. He says, because we know that we're going to get held to account, he says this. He says, and so we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that every single one of us, each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade other people. We try to persuade others. So for any of us in any kind of Christian leadership, we should be a people who fear the Lord. Uh, We should be a people who take God seriously. Uh, We should be a people who don't cross uh, boundaries because we know, we know that we're going to have to give an account for it all. And so it's with that sense of accountability for our actions as the, as the background this, for this, um, fund, this fundamental um, sense of a leader's mandate and a leader's calling. Paul uses that as the introduction to give Timothy this charge. And this is effectively his, his charge. And he says to Timothy in verse 2, um, preach the word. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and with careful instruction. And those of us, any of those of us in any kind of Christian leadership, whether it's leading a church, whether it's leading a house group or running a small group or leading a week on Vineyard Kids or, or wherever it may be the Lord has put us to serve, we are to be people who preach the word. We preach this, but we are to be a people who preach the word of God. We are to be a people who preach the scriptures. Uh, What Paul's talking about here is um, a people who live under the authority of what's in here, under the authority of the scriptures. And not only that, but they then in turn urge other people, the other people in their small group, the other, the kids on the, who come to Vineyard Kids, the youth who come in week, week in, week out, the people who gather here and sit and listen, urging people to live their lives under the authority um, of this book. And as I, I, you, you know, there are 101 things that a preacher could uh, preach other than the, from the scriptures. Uh, preachers could preach their own words. They could preach their own counsel. They could preach their own favorite theologies. They could preach on their own pet peeves. Preachers could get up here. This is why it's important that you bring your Bibles. You've got no idea what I might actually write on my PowerPoint late at night. Do you know what I mean? It could all be heresy. Do you see? One day I'm going to just do it just to test you. No, I won't. We'll have a heresy half hour. We used to have that in one of our house groups once. We used to have a heresy half hour. And we just used to see if anyone could spot the heresy. And then we'd stone them and stuff like that. But anyway, um, I'm just kidding. Um, but, you know, you could just preach on your own little things. Preachers could just preach on their own Thoughts, you know, oh, let me tell you my thoughts on sexuality, or let me tell you my own thoughts on marriage, or my own thoughts on politics, or whatever it is, you know. Um, Or it could be that we, as preachers, we kind of go, do you know what, this bit's really challenging. You know, this bit's really tricky. You know, and and every time I preach on this bit, I get all rude emails from people. I get all these emails and letters saying, what have you done this time? And I say, oh, God, it's too difficult. I'm not going to do the tricky bits anymore. I'll just do the easy bits. You know, the Jesus loves you stuff, right? 
You know, or, or it's like I read this fantastic book. I think it was on the New York Times, uh, you know, bestseller list. Some kind of fantastic self-help book. I'm going to preach from that. Ten top tips for a whatever. <coughs> Paul says, if you're going to be a leader in the church, if you're going to lead a small group, if you're going to run a house group, if you're going to lead a team on Vineyard Kids, preach the word. Preach the word. Don't preach your own ideas. Don't, treat, don't avoid the tricky bits. Don't just teach from some bestseller. Instead, submit your thoughts and your messages to the Scriptures. Uh, and while you're at it, make sure, he's sort of saying, when you're preaching from the Scriptures, when you're preaching the Word, don't twist it. Don't tamper with it. Don't, don't fiddle with it. Don't subtract from it. Don't add to it. Don't mess with it. Back in the beginning of, um, of 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy saying, What you heard from me, keep us the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in in Christ Jesus, guard the deposit, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And, and, and Paul is facing his imminent death. He, he knows that he's not going to be around very much longer for Timothy. And he's calling Timothy, and therefore us, to, to, to view preaching as this, this sacred trust. The sacred trust. As, as leaders, we are to guard. We are to guard the good deposit that has been given to us and has been entrusted to us and has been left to us. And we're to guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. God has entrusted the Scriptures into our hands. And so with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, we're to nurture it. We're to guard it. We're to treasure it. We're to preserve the wisdom and counsel that we find within the pages of this book. It's, it's, the image that, it, that comes to mind is like that of a, a banker you know, who, who is supposed to oversee and manage and invest someone's life savings. And it's like God has given us his life savings in this book. He's saying, now what are you going to do with it? And, and we are supposed to be faithful and responsible stewards who are to guard it and we're not to lose it or to fritter it away or to spend it unwisely, we're to manage it wisely, we're to guard it well. What should we be looking for for those in Christian leadership is someone who preaches the word, someone who's trying to bring uh, their own lives and the, the, the lives of the people in their group, in their ministry or in the church, under the authority of God's word. And then at the end, of, towards the rest of verse 2, he says this, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and great uh, with careful instruction. And the thing here is, um, fortunately, um, great preaching isn't just about kind of like, you know, rah, 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 rah. You know, inspirational, emotional appeal. Do you see? Which I find quite a relief, as I'm sure do you. Um, good preaching isn't just inspirational. It's not supposed to kind of just whip us up into a frenzy, do you see? So that we all kind of start losing the plot. And what, what Paul's saying in here is, he says, preach the word with, with, with great patience and careful instruction. And, and, and what he's saying here is, preach with teaching. It, it's about teaching. Great preaching, good preaching isn't just about an emotional appeal, where, you know, well, I felt all warm and fuzzy inside, and I was weeping all the way through. I mean, you know, it could be that, right? But if that's all it is, We've not engaged our heads somewhere along the process. We're missing something that Paul's encouraging us. And good preaching is supposed to have some kind of a solid foundation laid, some kind of foundation for our minds that impacts our minds that then dis, it sort of distills down into our hearts that then compels us to respond and to act. Preach 
with teaching and the, and the preaching with teaching, it, it needs to be sound. It needs to be sound. Have a look at verses 3 and 4. For the time will come where people will not put up with sound doctrine. You know, some of the emails I get, I think we're already there, you know. The time will come where people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. You know what that means? It's like, well, I don't really like what you've said. Sounds a bit harsh. Let me see if I can find somebody else. And we just go around, and in this day and age, you know, with podcasts and YouTubes and channels and technological things that I have no idea what they actually are, you can fish around and shop around until you can find anyone who will tell you anything that you want to hear. It's like, oh, yes, I believe him. I agree with him or her. He says, Paul's saying, you know, what's going to happen is they're going to turn their ears away from truth and turn their ears towards myth. And he's saying, he talks about sound doctrine in verse 3, and in verse 4 he talks about the truth. Um, those of us in any kind of Christian leadership or influence, we ought to be helping people make decisions for their lives, not based on just on some emotional appeal that, that may evaporate, but on the sound, solid foundation of truth. You know, live, live like this. Live this way because it's true. And uh, believe this because it's true. Live in this way because this is the way the universe actually is. And we find talking about truth increasingly difficult. And we've got to make sure that we don't, we don't wander and waver from that. A Christian leader is someone who understands their mandate. A Christian leader is someone who preaches the word. And then in verse 5, a Christian leader is, is an evangelist. is someone who preaches the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 5, it says this, But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist and discharge all the duties of your ministry. Paul is saying, Timothy, leaders, do the work of an evangelist. And, and he's saying, if you're in any kind of position of leadership, uh, preach the good news. Preach the good news of Jesus Christ. And he's not saying, that doesn't mean to say you have to become the next Billy Graham. He's not saying you have to go and stand on a street corner with a, with a sandwich board saying the end of the world is nigh. You know, repent. You can do that if you want, right? Uh, he's just saying share the good news. Preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Because where else is the good news found but in Jesus Christ? Jesus is the content of the evangelist's message. Jesus is the content of the good news of which we speak. And the good news... Um, is that God, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, has done what you and I can't do. Through Jesus, he's achieved the things that we cannot do. Through the, through the cross and the, res the death and resurrection of Jesus, through the person of Jesus, God has literally set the world free from its slavery to sin. Through the wonderful person of Jesus, God has rescued the whole of humanity. God has rescued us. God has reconciled us. God has reconciled us through the death of Christ to himself. God has reconciled us to ourselves in the process. God has reconciled us to each other, to one another in the process. God has reconciled us to the world in which we live in the process, all because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
uh, through the perfect, sinless life of Jesus, God has rescued us and redeemed us and adopted us into his family as sons and daughters. And he fills us with his Holy Spirit and empowers us to live life to the full, such that we are so full and filled with the Holy Spirit that we even overcome the power of death. Jesus has overcome the power of death and has secured for us um, a place in his eternal kingdom, in his eternal rule and reign. The good news is found in Jesus Christ. The good news is found in his perfect sinless life. The good news is found in his sacrificial death. It's found in his resurrection. It's found in his ascension. It's found in his fullness in his second coming. And the job of an evangelist is not to talk about ourselves. We're just like a, literally like a signpost doing that. We just we just point to the cross. That's all we do. We signpost. Invisible, apart from the fact we're saying, no, 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 go beyond me. Look to him. Consider him. Consider Jesus. All we have to do is talk about him, talk about Jesus and his matchless beauty. That's all we have to do. The evangelist points to Jesus. The evangelist says, the good news is found in Christ Jesus. And so... Uh, the evangelist listens to somebody and they hear a story that somebody's saying where they're saying, in effect, that they feel disconnected from God. You may feel disconnected from God. You may, you may want a relationship with God, but it seems like the last thing you're able to grasp hold of, you feel like God's a million miles away. The evangelist hears that and goes, oh, good news. Good news, I've got great news for you. I heard your story. Guess what? I've got good news for you. Do you know what? Jesus has done everything that needs to be done so that you can be reconnected with God. Isn't it amazing? This fantastic news. So that you don't have to feel so far away from God. You can boldly approach the throne of grace. It's because of Jesus, the evangelist says, that, that all the barriers that existed between us and God, which is namely our sin and our stuff and our shame and our rubbish, it's all been removed. He took it all away. He took it all into himself on the cross. The evangelist hears us talking and telling our stories about how our dysfunctional our families were when we were growing up and how we grew up in broken homes or how we never knew our mothers and fathers and uh, 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 how our parents were divorced and it was just carnage growing up. And the, the evangelist listens to that and says, oh, great news. I was listening to your story. Oh, sorry, I've just got to interrupt. Do you know what? I've got some amazingly wonderful news for you. Because of Jesus, because of what he's done, you can be adopted into God's family. It's fantastic news. You can be adopted into God's family. God is your father. Jesus is your older brother. The brothers and sisters in the church are there for you. The evangelist listens and talks to somebody who's, who's, who's basically an addict. They're, they're addicted to something. Uh, um, they, they, they may have an eating disorder. They may be addicted to sex or to work or to whatever it is. And the evangelist talks to that person and they listen with the ears of their heart and they don't see the drug addiction and the addiction and all of that challenge. And it doesn't offend them because they go, oh, hold on, hold on. Uh, yeah, I've got some amazing news for you. There's good news for you. Did you know this? That you can be set free from your bondage and your slavery, the, 
the, the, the sin and the bondage that's oppressing you and has got you tied up literally in chains so you can't breathe anymore. It's like an anaconda. It's wrapped around you and you took a breath and then it squeezed again and you're like, oh, there's nothing left. I'm dying. That's what those, that's what those addictions do. They constrict the life out of us until we die because we can't breathe. And the evangelist listens to that story and goes, hold on, hold on, I've got some great news. Did you know there's another story to your life? And it's the fact that Jesus died to buy people out of slavery. He went to the market where slaves were being lined up and he said, I will buy every single one of them with my life. You might be telling a story where you're, oh, I'm so successful, I, I, I've, I'm, I've got so much money, I've got so much this, so much that, and yet for some reason I feel completely empty inside. You have this gnawing, nagging, constant feeling that there's something missing in your life. And the evangelist listens to that and goes, okay, I I can see what God's doing here. Do you know what? I've got amazing news for you. I've got great news. I've got good news. Your life can be full of meaning. Your life can be full of purpose. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. You're not supposed to be living this shadow of an existence. I've got great news for you. You're supposed to be living abundant life. An evangelist listens to somebody who's got an incurable disease, um, uh, uh, somebody who's got cancer, somebody who has heart disease. And um, by the way, we all have an incurable disease. We are all suffering from an incurable disease. It's called aging, right? Okay? Um, and the reality is that every single one of us, we are all in the process of dying. If Christ doesn't return, okay, we will all die. Whether that's by natural causes, whether that's by some accident, or whether that's by disease, okay? It's a reality, okay? We should be talking about it in the church. Um, and so you listen, and you hear someone who's dying, and you're like, oh, golly, what's, what could possibly be the good news for the dying? The evangelist is racking their brains and their hearts and going, God, what's the good news? And the good news is John 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. We may be, we may be a people who have completely and utterly, literally ruined our lives by years of bad choices. Um, we may have constantly chosen the wrong boyfriend or the wrong girlfriend. Uh, we, may have, uh, we may be in such a state that we've decided that the only way for us to deal with our life is to escape from it by living in some crazy fantasy world. You know, and our bad choices, the bad decisions we've made that we wish we could undo, but we don't know how to, um, they've not only upset us and affected us, they've affected uh, people around us, our friends, uh, our children, our spouses, our parents, the list goes on. You know, and it may be that for some of us, we've literally lived for decades in, you know, the story of the prodigal son. We've, we've lived for decades in the proverbial pigsty. We've, we've, we've settled, we've, 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 ah, we've cashed out on our inheritance. We said, ah, I want my inheritance. I want to go and do my own thing. And we've gone and we ended up doing our own thing. And now we've found ourselves stuck in some pigsty on the 
backside of the world. We've been living in this pigsty for years, and, and, and the evangelist hears that story and says, I've got great news for you. You, um, you don't have to live in a pigsty anymore. You uh, can be entirely and completely and utterly forgiven and welcomed back into God's family. All you need to do is get up from your pigsty and return to your father's house. Right? All you need to do is recognize that you just need to go back to your father in heaven and say, do you know what, I, I have sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Because you know what, your father in heaven is looking out for you. Because that story says that while he was still, while the son was still a long way off, the father ran out to meet him. He runs out to meet him. This old man runs out to meet his son. He hugs him and embraces him. Do you remember when James Hodges was here? It was one beautiful sermon on the, pro, pro, uh, the prodigal son. And he said, and he embraces him and he kisses him and he kisses him and he kisses him and he kisses him. The father kisses the son. And welcomes him home. He puts his robe on him. He puts his ring of authority on him. He puts his, his sandals on his feet. And he says, hey, 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 kill the fattened car. Let's have a party. Because this son of mine was dead and is now alive. The evangelist hears that story and tells that, that parable. So that we can go, wow, I don't have to live in this squalor and degradation anymore. Jesus is the good news. If we're leading in the church, no matter what the capacity, we need to be people who understand our mandate, who preach the word, and who preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Because it's all we've got. What else do we have apart from the good news of Jesus? And lastly, absolutely lastly, we need to be a people who finish well. Have a look at verses 6 to 8. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who belong to his appearing. We need to be a people who finish well, who are finishing well. Here's Paul in jail. He's about to be um, given over to a full Roman tribunal. Uh, a death sentence would be handed down that would result, according to history, in his uh, beheading on the Ostian Way, probably around 68 AD. Um, and here's Paul anticipating his death, and he, he uses these different uh, images to describe it. Um, the first thing he talks about is the sacrifice, the, the sacrifice in verse 6, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the picture in the image here is in the Old Testament, um, along with the sacrifice of an animal, when someone would make an offering of an, an animal, sometimes in addition to that offering, they would, they would literally get a cup of wine and, and just pour it out into the dirt, just literally pour it out. And it, it, it was a symbol of giving, your, of giving your all. I'm just giving everything I have. And here's Paul looking back on his life, and he's saying, do you know what, I, I didn't hold anything back. I, I didn't give God just out of the surplus, out of my excess. I didn't give God my leftovers. I didn't just give God the crumbs off my table, this token gesture, and then say, now, God, I've been so benevolent and kind and given you all of these crumbs. Now will you please bless every area of my life? Paul said, no, I haven't done that. I've given my all. I've given God my heart. I've given God my emotions. I've given God my will. I've given God my time. I've given God my body, my energy, my money. I, I've given everything I possibly can. I've given everything I possibly can for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. Every ounce of strength, everything I could 
muster it. And he says, what I've done so many times, I'm going to do one more time. I'm going to do one last time. I'm about to be poured out to the very last drop. I'm happy to be spent in the service of the king. Uh, John Wimber, the chap who founded these, this bunch of churches called the Vineyard, he used to say, um, we're just loose change in God's pocket. We're just loose change in God's pocket for the Lord to spend as he sees fit. And, and that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, um, there's, there's just, just this last bit of change is about to be spent. Everything else is gone. <laughs> there's only this little hate me left. But it's about to be spent. Is, is that how we see our lives? Is that how we view our lives? Do we live our lives according to Galatians 2? You know, that I, I have been uh, crucified. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith. By faith in the Son of God who, who loves me and who gave himself up for me. Do we, do we understand that? Do we understand that we no longer live? It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. I've been crucified. The moment I gave my life to Jesus, I was crucified with Christ. So I don't, I don't exist anymore. The life I now live, I live by faith, by faith in the Son of God. And he loves me and he gave himself up for me. And it is a joy for me to spend my life, for my life to be spent in the service of the King. Do we live life like that? Do we regularly say us about ourselves, I'm just loose change in the Lord's pocket for him to spend as he sees fit? I, get, I don't get any say. I don't get any say in this. If, if he wants to spend me on some elderly relative or on sending me on some Christian mission or sending me to the poor or sending me to be light at work or my job, which is a really dark place, that's God's prerogative. Who am I? Of course. I'm just loose change in his pocket for him to spend as he sees fit. And then the next thing he says in verse 6, he talks about the departure. Paul says, the time for my departure is near. It's so poignant, um, this, this whole section. He, he, the image is really um, is, is that of a boat being untied and, um, and pulling away from the dock. Uh, and um, it's a bit like, uh, is, it the, is it the Lord of the Rings? Yeah, Lord of the Rings? It's a bit like the end of the Lord of the Rings where, you know, Frodo and Gandalf get on the boat. Are they heading, is it the Grey Havens? Lord, Lord of the Rings geeks. You know they're heading off. Is it the Grey Havens? Is that where they're going? Somewhere like that. And, and the idea is this, this, this lifting, the hoisting of the anchor and sailing off, you know, for eternity. And, um, and what Paul is saying here is, is that my ship is pulling up anchor. I, I'm about to sail for heaven. Do we... Um, tuneful um, I, 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 I've just been I've just been taken away by the music um, do we live with this sense this, 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 this constant this reality that one day we will be hoisting anchor and we'll be departing for somewhere do we have that sense of our own mortality and yet our own immortality in, the, in our minds and he uses these two um, athletic metaphors in verse 7. He says, I've fought the good fight. Um, I, I've, finished, I've finished the race. Uh, he's fought the good fight. And, and the reality is, just in case you weren't aware, life is a fight. 
You know, contrary to 21st century popular culture, um, life isn't actually meant to be easy. It's meant to be abundant, but it's not meant to be easy. And, and life isn't just a stroll in the park. You know, it's not a day at the beach. Life is a fight. Life is hard for the majority of people. Life is often unfair. Life often hurts. And the Christian life, particularly, it, it seems frequently to be a fight. The constant battle, it's a constant fight for us to discipline our emotions. It's a constant battle for us to, um, uh, to, to decide to not act on our patterns of sin. It's a constant fight for us to say no to ourselves and say yes to the Spirit of God. It's a constant tension and battle. And yet Paul has fought the good fight. He's fought the fight in his life to see the kingdom of God extended. He's fought the fight to bring the message, the good news of Jesus to the lost. He's, he's, brought, he's fought the fight to, um, to bring uh, healing and to feed the hungry and to bring financial help to the poor and to bring justice to the oppressed. These are the fights he's been involved in. Paul has fought the good fight over his life to, to help break down racial barriers between Jews and Gentiles. Um, he's fought the good fight uh, to break down barriers, whatever we may think, you know, when we read it. But he fought to bring down, break down barriers between uh, men and women, slaves and free. And, and there's a challenge in here. It's just like, what, what good fights are you involved in? What good fights are we involved in? What, what fights are we fighting for? And then absolutely lastly, his last words are, I've kept the faith. I've kept the faith. Paul kept the faith. Through it all, he remained faithful. He stayed true to the Lord all the way through. And here at the end of his life, here at the end of his life, we see a man, we're reading about a man who is still head over heels in love with Jesus and still loves his church, Christ's bride, despite everything he's been through. And he's been through a lot, right? It's all laid out there for us to read. Uh, he's been through the persecutions and the sufferings and the beatings and the imprisonments and everything. Everyone's abandoned him. And in the midst of it all, he hasn't grown bitter. He hasn't grown cynical. All he's wanted throughout it all was for the name of Jesus to be glorified. His soul burns with passion, even though his body is, is tired and spent. His spirit is alive in Christ, and it's as alive as it had ever been. And in and through it all, in all of that adversity, he's kept the faith. He hasn't changed the message. He hasn't accommodated the message. He hasn't subtracted from the message. He hasn't added to it. And he's finished well. When we look at the life of Paul, when we read some of the letters of Paul, you know, is Paul... Direct, yes, you bet. Okay. Um, do we find some of the things that he teaches? Do we find some of the things in some of his letters uh, challenging and difficult? Uh, absolutely. Was Paul a great leader? Was Paul a great example? Has Paul been a wonderful model to the church for 2,000 years? Without question. Without question. Question. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. And, and for those of us in any kind of Christian leadership, whether here in the church, whether at work, whether in our homes, wherever it is the Lord has put us, are we taking this charge that Paul has given Timothy? Are we taking it seriously? Are we taking it to heart? And how are we doing? Do we know the mandate of our calling? Are we preaching the word of God? 
Are we a people who are doing the work of an evangelist? Are we preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, Christ crucified? Are we going to finish the race that we're in well? And are we able to do all of that such that we can say we have faithfully discharged all the duties of our ministry? I've gone on for too long. Why don't you stand and we'll minister.